Tell me, what's the most recent film you've seen? Well, by the way, I'm not a fan of films. Yeah, mostly I watch on, um, you know, those are Turkish films or Tugum. I don't know whether you have seen it. These are the ones I mostly follow. But uh, the last one I watched was uh, some Brick. Let me see that. So that was long ago. You know, I never watched the film. I kind of got lost in the series. Hello and welcome to the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara, I'm your host, and today we're going to be in discussion with Dr. Luke Harrington on the intersection between religion, gender, and political violence. This particular episode was inspired by an article that Dr. Harrington wrote for E-International Relations, for which there is a link, yes, in the description box. And also, whilst we're talking about the description box, don't forget to subscribe. That little button to subscribe should be just by the description box. Click on that and you'll be able to get notified whenever there's a new episode of Thinking Global. Today, my co-host is Ismail Aden. Ismail is a Kenya-based student from Somalia studying international relations at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Ismail has lived in Kenya for the past 10 years, and his particular interests are in religious extremism, political violence, and their consequences. Today, he's my co-host. Come on, Ismail. Say hey. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I am Ismail Aden. Now, today, we are discussing the intersection between religion, political violence, and gender. So I do need to stress a bit of a content warning. And there are going to be some sensitive topics that are going to be discussed and some real world examples. So I just want to let you guys know that before we begin. Alongside that, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views of guests are their own and in no way represent the views of their employers, be that in the public or private sector, and our guest today is no exception. At the time of recording, Dr. Luke M. Harrington is an adjunct professor of political science at Park University in Parkville, Missouri. His research and teaching interests focus on political violence and extremism, religion and comparative and international politics, IR theory, and popular culture. Okay, let's do it. Let's think global. Hi, Luke. It's great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So my first question about this article that you wrote for E-International Relations is what do you mean by the intersection of religion, gender, and political violence? So yeah, that's, you know, a fantastic question. Great way to start off this discussion. Uh, the thing that kind of motivated this research was uh, my effort to uh, sort of understand Chandra Mahante's uh, Feminism Without Borders. And she discusses the relationship between religious persecution and political violence and gender. Women and children are, you know, the most at risk uh, or the most vulnerable to this sort of violence. And that sort of motivated me to kind of review the literature and see what people are actually saying about where these three things kind of come together and intersect out in the world. Uh, and the really two bodies of uh, scholarship that talk about uh, religion and sex and violence or religion and gender and violence. But the problem is, is that they kind of talk past each other and they kind of use these concepts. Uh, I don't want to say differently, but really without any understanding of what we're actually talking about. And so a lot of times when we look at the examples of religion and gender and violence, uh, it's hard to know whether we're talking about violence directed at religious communities that is gender-based violence 
or whether we're talking about religiously motivated violence that is directed at women and LGBTQ people. Uh, that might seem like a matter of semantics, but you know what I kind of developed as my own personal understanding while reading it uh, is the idea that these things may have similar effects, uh, but uh, ultimately they are going to be different, you know, sort of ontologically unique phenomena. And that because of that, I sort of want to be able to properly conceptualize them, disentangle them from one another, and uh, then maybe we can begin theorizing uh, what these phenomena look like out in the wild. Hmm, interesting. How, or rather, where do we see this intersection on the international or global level? Uh, yeah, so that's a fantastic question. I prefer not to try to sensationalize all these examples. A lot of times that's what it looks like in the literature, maybe for shock value. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, we can look to context of war or rape as a weapon of war. Uh, genocide comes to mind. Uh, more specific examples, these will include the outbreak of violence in Gujarat in 2002. This was an outbreak of sort of religious violence and sexual violence targeted at women in the community. As we proceed to, say, the year 2014, maybe 2015, we see ISIS through Iraq uh, and Syria. ISIS, of course, being the uh, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria or the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. And as we see this movement spreading, we see, you know, the per I don't know if persecution is the right word, but we see the persecution of the Yazidi community. The Yazidi men are sort of targeted for execution as part of this uh, campaign of violence, while the women are actually going to end up as sex slavery and that sort of thing. So uh, we see that as sort of being another example. The kind of main examples, though, that I talk about in the paper, uh, first is going to be the story of, I believe it's Kamisa Sawidi. Uh, this was a 75-year-old woman in Saudi Arabia. She was Her story was written about just briefly in the New York Times, as far as I recall. But she was a widowed woman, and uh, around 2008, her uh, nephew delivered bread to her home. The nephew arrived with a business associate. Uh, the religious police decided that the nephew was not a close enough relative uh, to Saweetie. Uh, and as a result, all three were charged with an improper, you know, relationship. The fact that these two men had been in her home bringing her bread. Uh, and as a result, they were sentenced to be lashed. 40 lashes, I believe. And what we see, you know, if we were to look at that from, say, a feminist perspective or, you know, a theoretical lens, you know, this is an obvious violation of women's rights in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the response would be greater uh, autonomy and that sort of thing in the kingdom. Uh, however, what we see is that the religious freedom scholars look at it totally differently. They kind of look at uh, Sawidi as sort of like a religious dissenter, that because she's not practicing sort of the mainstream state-sanctioned version of religion, you can think of her as like a religious minority. As a result, she is being persecuted for her religious nonconformity. Uh, and so the expansion of women's rights could actually be a problem. It could hamper uh, women's rights in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, because the real issue, as far as the scholars are learned, is not women's rights per se, but it's actually going to be religious freedom. <clears throat> the second example is the 2002 destruction of the Buddhist statues uh, by the Taliban. 
religious freedom scholars would obviously look to this see you know a, a you know flagrant violation of the religious freedom of buddhists uh for the scholars of women's rights who are looking at this same issue uh, they're actually going to decry the fact that it received an international outcry uh, where the plight of Afghan women did not receive the same sort of attention. Uh, personally, I think maybe that's a, it's a hard critique to swallow because you actually see figures like Hillary Clinton on the international stage bringing attention to practices like forced veiling uh, in the Afghan context, um, the inability for Afghan women to be educated in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, it doesn't receive the sort of greatest level of attention. And part of that is probably because, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't a policymaker, still the first lady of the United States. So uh, it's hard to say. But what we end up seeing between these two intellectual camps uh, is sort of a polarized debate. It looks like an ego contest uh, that we would see in american politics here in the united states what these feminist scholars are arguing about women's rights and the way religious freedom is weaponized against religious rights and sexual freedom uh, arguments that you see leveraged in the american left uh, so among american progressives and liberals but by contrast uh, the deeper you read and it looks like you actually have the opposite happening in this body of scholarship where you have uh, scholars who tend to be more conservative so you end up having a instead of a productive intellectual dialogue between these two bodies of scholars, you have something that looks more like an ideological fight. To me, it seems like the field of international relations uh, kind of suffers as a result because we can see, yes, women are suffering and yes, religious minorities are suffering, but because we've made this uh, contest that we are actually getting lost and we are making it impossible to formulate the kind of policy because ultimately we're fighting about politics and we're not properly conceptualizing or theorizing these things that we're seeing happen. Okay, then how do you understand political violence as a whole? So yeah, that's a fantastic question. You know, uh, I think the simple answer is that, you know, of course, political violence is going to include, you know, phenomena like international conflict. It's going to include civil war if we want to bring our colleagues from comparative politics into the discussion. Uh, it's also going to include ethnic conflict, genocide, especially as we see the spread of sexual violence. I've also noticed scholars are more growing, it seems to me anyway, that they're growing more concerned with the subject of hate crime. It may be that they have, you know, kind of an interest in this from an extremism perspective because of the association of hate crime with uh, sort of racialized violence, especially in the United States and elsewhere in the West, but it's kind of new, at least in the study of religion and violence. Beyond that, we're going to uh, look at the study of terrorism. So uh, whether we're talking about domestic terrorism or international terrorism, both of these problems. And then within that, I'm also going to be, you know, studying the subject of extremism, people who are part of the sort of ideological communities uh, that may produce uh, individuals or groups willing to then carry out violence. And in addition to that, the other thing that I'm, you know, interested in studying myself is going to be the process of radicalization. So a group or individual uh, from what we might think of as more mainstream politics, and as they move from more mainstream politics, they'll end up in these extremist communities. They may or may not be someone who's, you know, interested in carrying out an act of political violence, but as they become more and more radical, a move from, or, or excuse me, first we'll see a move into the extremist community, and then we'll see a move into support for violence and potentially actually carrying out violence. Within that, sort of my approach 
to understanding political violence and uh, religious violence in particular uh, is to kind of to adopt the question of conditions, you know, a religious actor or a religious group is going to turn to political violence. Uh, and for me, there's actually a real analogy that I have taken to uh, using, particularly when I'm talking to my students about this subject. And over in our our colleagues over in the field of you know biology or chemistry, they will look at uh, the human body and they will talk about uh, specifically a protein that I believe is called interleukin-6. And it is a really interesting protein because when it is excreted from muscle tissue, uh, it is actually responsible for reducing inflammation in the human body. And when we look at this same sort of protein, when it is excreted from adipose tissue or fat tissue, it does the exact opposite. It creates inflammation. Uh, and so I kind of use this analogy uh, when I'm talking about religion and violence with my students, because I see religion as a protein. Uh, it is something that we very obviously see uh, having, you know, very positive benefits for society, it, but at the same time, it can lead to inflammation. So uh, my objective is I try to understand this phenomenon within that specifically, as I try to understand terrorism and religious terrorism. Uh, what I'm curious to know is what is the equivalent in this analogy to the muscle tissue? What is the equivalent in this analogy to the adipose tissue? Uh, when is it that, you know, religion is sort of formulated that it turns to violence or inflammation? Uh, or when does it end up fighting inflammation? Why is gender so significant to the discussion of political violence? Um, yeah, so violence, I, th I think, is the idea that that is significant is at this point, it should be without controversy. Uh, there may not, there may, I guess, still be some scholars out there who are not quite interested in the subject. But uh, when we look at women and children in particular, for example, uh, we see that they are primary sort of uh, targets or victims of political violence. Uh, they tend to also have different experiences. Uh, and the reason they have different experiences as survivors is because their trauma uh, is itself different. And so the victimization uh, in political violence is different for, you know, women and children than it is for men. If this ends up being a situation where we want to take an interest in how women experience political violence, how children experience political violence, and then beyond that, how other sexual minorities experience uh, political violence. The inspiration for me was Chandra Mahanti's book. Uh, she will actually talk uh, based on the context of this discussion about how, you know, women and children are the primary people involved in refugee outflows of the political conflict. Uh, so we also see that, you know, gender ends up being implicated in a lot of secondary issues that sort of emanate from conflict situations and, you know, also caused by political violence. Uh, but then also beyond that, too, we want to understand, you know, the unique experiences of men, because we can look at abuses that took place in the Abu Ghraib prison complex in the 2000s during the Iraq war. And we can see that, you know, men are not exempt from this intersection where religion and gender and violence interact in, you know, specific and unique ways. There was an interesting article that I read by a scholar named Patrick Vernon 
And he also talks about, uh, I believe the topic is queering genocide. And he sort of talks about, you know, the way genocide can be thought of as a performance of heterosexuality. And because it is a performance of heterosexuality among the perpetrators of this act, engage in certain heterosexual behaviors that are aimed at undermining the community under attack. Uh, and so, for example, the use of rape as a tactic against women in genocidal situations. Uh, but men are also going to be uh, increasingly the subject of rape and similar sexual violence because perpetrators will try to essentially feminize men uh, because once they see they're feminized uh, through the act of, of rape, what happens is uh, male and female survivors both of sexual violence in the context of genocide uh, end up carrying a stigma with them. And yeah, we certainly see gender and political violence in all sorts of different ways. Those are just some of the interesting ones that come to mind. Okay, okay. I want to ask a question, just sharpening your conceptual apparatus a little bit. Is there such a thing as religious violence, or is all religious violence just political violence? I mean, that's just a brilliant question. Um, Thank you. When, <laughs> <laughs> if you would have asked me 15 or 15 years ago, or even two decades ago, I think, or heck, if you would have asked many scholars, uh, I think they would have pointed to, you know, the acts of September 11th, um, or they would have pointed to the London, the bombing of the London Underground, uh, or the Madrid attacks, and they would have said, you know, religious violence is not only obvious, it's maybe self-evident, uh, because we can point right there to the United States, we can point right there to the United Kingdom, we can point right there to Spain, and we can say, yes, it's happening right there. Uh, and in fact, you know, I recall reading a book um two authors named benjamin and simon and it was called age of sacred terror and i can't recall exactly when i read it but it would have been right around 2005 and this was exactly the message that you get from that kind of book produced in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks and produced during the global war on terror the idea was of course that religious violence is absolutely there you end up with more nuanced, more sophisticated research that starts to question whether or not religious violence is actually ontologically or even epistemologically valid. Uh, I want to know when religion is going to behave in those pro-social ways uh, and under what conditions it's going to turn to those uh, anti-social outcomes, uh, when it will become violent or misogynistic or whatever. I still personally think it's important to understand when religious actors turn to violence. Uh, the reason I'm going, you know, I'm saying all of this is because uh, when we're trying to understand these conditions, uh, my own research is starting to make me question this. It's making me want to know if if this question is, you know, has a lot of merit, I think it has a lot of merit, but uh, implied rejection of the concept of religious violence that is, you know, implicit in this question uh, is correct. But this is essentially where my research is. It's essentially where the field is. Uh, in fact, here in the United States, the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, I believe, has a conference in October. Uh, and this is the conference theme. They're trying to understand the conditions under which religion does good things and bad things. Uh, but the theories that we have with as we try to answer this question 
a lot of times are pointing us to the politics of the moment. So, you know, we could go all the way back to that uh, book I read in 2004, Age of Sacred Terror. And when we look at that, you know, one of the examples you get is the uh, the statement, the goals that they were trying to achieve. And when you look at this, if you're a scholar like Benjamin and Simon, the authors, you say, hey, Uh, Look at all of these references to Allah. Look at all these references to religion. And you say, hey, this is obviously religious violence. Uh, But when you look at, say, Karen Armstrong's reading, you walk away with a totally different understanding because you realize, hey, wait a minute, they're not talking about religious objectives at all. They're talking about geostrategic goals as far as Israel and Palestine and their political relationship is concerned. Uh, You're talking about geostrategic goals as far as uh, removing American military forces from the Middle East are concerned. And so when you look at this text from a strategic perspective, you can see that, oh, wait a minute, there actually are a lot of different uh, sort of political themes. And when we look at our theories, they kind of all point in the same direction, right? So we have instrumentalist theory, which tells us that uh, religion will become violent if it has an economic or political motive to, you know, galvanize a uh, religious audience. It's uh, actually really similar to what you see with Marxism. We have religious freedom literature, the sort of body of scholarship that I'm most familiar with. Uh, you actually see that it's religious oppression. So uh, whether we're talking about political leaders or oppression in the religious freedom peace tradition, uh, you ultimately get this idea that there are political phenomena driving religious actors to what we would think of as political violence. So uh, this idea that um, religious violence may not be a valid concept uh, really does seem to have weight, if you ask me. That is a fabulous answer for a fabulous question. <laughs> okay, so I have a couple of questions that we ask everybody here at Thinking Global. The first is, what is it to think globally for you? I honestly wish I, because I realize, you know, that we're getting into the eponymous subject of the podcast here. Uh, I wish, you know, a more profound answer for you, um, but I'm not sure that my answer is all that profound. (laughs) Um, For me, thinking global is going to be, uh, you know, taking an interest, for instance, in world affairs and world history. For me, though, it's actually going to be more than that. It's going to be really about creating the broadest possible worldview, uh, maybe a well-rounded, holistic worldview. Uh, And what that's going to entail for me to think global is that I'm going to want to I'm going to want to understand what my colleagues in other fields are saying. Uh, Or maybe I'm going to want my colleagues working in other theoretical traditions are saying. Or ultimately, maybe I'm going to want to know what my colleagues in other countries are saying, right? To me, this is the only real way that we can kind of create a holistic view of of social life, of sort of the natural world, and all of our ideas about them. Uh, And ultimately, it's, you know, sort of think creatively, maybe think more creatively if we can have this sort of broad worldview, uh, which will allow us to draw connections and where maybe someone else uh, doesn't realize there's a problem yet or doesn't see the possibilities for connection yet. Um, But probably more importantly, and I'll let my normative biases show through here for a moment, um, probably more importantly that, you know, developing this sort of broad worldview through, you know, sort of global perspective uh, is that we want to build empathy towards the 8 billion other people riding through the universe with us, right? 
trying to, you know, understand and recognize the full humanity of everyone we share this world with. Uh, because I honestly think that if that's not the only way we're going to solve all of our collective problems, it's going to be one of the best ways we can solve them. Uh, so whether we're talking about genocide, underdevelopment, or extremism, or gender-based violence, or climate uh, climate change, uh, I think this sort of thing is going to be what ultimately allows us to think actively together uh, across the lines that may otherwise divide us. Nah, that's a really, really good answer. That is profound. That's a really good answer. I love that. Okay, so my very last question. If you had to recommend three works to our listeners, what would you recommend to read and why? Uh, see, that's a really hard question. And the reason, I'll tell you, uh, hopefully it's a short story. It's probably not going to be a short story because I like to ramble. Uh, but I'll tell you what I think is sort of an amusing story. As a kid, kind of even as a young adult, I uh, actually struggled a lot with reading. Um, and enough so that you wouldn't realize for somebody who's going to grad school dealing with the you know graduate reading load uh but that's actually what made me realize that maybe there was something going on um i'm one of those people that kind of struggles and uh i'll read a sentence you know four or five six times before i you know some meaning finally sinks in or something um but then the pandemic hit and i started noticing some other things too you know uh, things with like focus and motivation. And I'm apparently part of a trend. Uh, I don't know if it's a global trend, but it's at least a trend in the post-industrial world where a lot of people uh, trying to stay safe during the pandemic and keep their neighbors safe uh, realized that they were all struggling with these same sorts of issues. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because uh, back in 2017, even though I only have really just learned this, you know, I'd say before 2017, I probably read at most, you know, 30 easily at like not very many books we'll say 30 30 at most uh and the reason this question is hard for me to under uh to answer at this point is that after 2017 because audiobooks blocked uh my you know issues with reading and made it so that i can enjoy everything i'd been missing out on before now i will preach the gospel of audiobooks that's that's sort of why it's hard for me to answer this question um let me think so three books i would recommend most audiobooks are absolutely fantastic though i will say like i i i'm completely bought by audiobooks <laughs> myself uh, so yeah yeah audiobooks are fantastic it's just you know it's made it so it's made reading so accessible for me that uh i i've even taken to including in my syllabi uh state my students find audiobooks if they struggle with reading and that sort of stuff just to make uh make the classroom more accessible as well um okay so uh but with the three books yeah probably the first is going to be uh the skeptic's guide to the future by stephen novella uh it's similar for anyone who may be familiar with lawrence friedman's book the future of war history these are futurists who are thinking from a more scientific lens whereas friedman is a historian concerned with military history and that sort of thing essentially a book that's going to look to the academic study uh, or academic discipline of future studies uh, as well as science fiction and it's going to try to tell what the futurists of the past uh, did right and did wrong as far as their effort to imagine what the present would be like Probably the book that I'm most excited about currently is going to be Philip Zimbardo's 
the Lucifer effect. The Lucifer effect is something that kind of resonate, like at least so far, the argument seems like it really resonates with my research in that uh, conditions under which people turn to uh, the word he uses is evil, but violence and that sort of thing would maybe fit hand in hand. He's uh, the person who's famous. Um, excuse me, it might be better to perhaps describe him as infamous or a Stanford prison experiments of the, I believe it was in the 1970s. Uh, the book is trying to sort of reflect back on that experience involved with the Stanford prison experiments, but because it wasn't written until 2007, he's also juxtaposing that against uh, the scandal that is Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, and that sort of thing. So he's trying to, you know, juxtapose the uh, Stanford prison experiments with the violations taking place at Abu Ghraib, uh, trying to understand, you know, what makes people turn to violence in some cases, what makes people turn to uh, more pro-social behavior. And his argument is going to be, or at least so far the way I understand his argument is going to be that it's more about uh, social structure. So he'll say that our our institutions and structures create the situations that drive people to what we would think of as violence or evil, essentially. Um, and third book, that's, that's like I said, that's really hard, but it's going to be Hank, well, it's two books actually, but Hank Green's two novels. Uh, the first is uh, yes. a, an astonishingly, Oh man, I can't remember. He has the weird. Uh, one of the sequel is a beautifully foolish endeavor, and now that I'm trying for the first book, I can't remember. But it's an astonishingly something, uh, and essentially, it's a story is very clearly Hank Green's effort to understand his own social media celebrity and the implications of that celebrity for his you know personal life. I think uh, it, it, there's definitely a lot of themes there, and, and I would recommend it to anybody who's looking for. Uh, something that they can use more as an escapism than uh, deeper texts that we engage with in international politics. Three brilliant suggestions. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Harrington, it's been absolutely lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Ismail, Kieran, thank you for having me. It's uh, been a delight. Uh, have a wonderful day. Oof, that was a good discussion. <laughs> Covered a lot of ground. What do you think, Ismail? This is such a very insightful discussion with curated content laced with historical references. To say the least, it is an excellent session of this kind. Honestly, mate, I think you have hit the nail spot on the head. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with you there. Please do subscribe if you haven't already done so. Just click on that little subscribe or follow button on whatever platform you're using. It will mean the world to us. That means that you'll get notified whenever a new episode comes out. And just, yeah, like, share, subscribe and follow. Spread the word. <laughs> And don't forget that at Thinking Global, we are part of E-International Relations, the world's largest open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you want to find all that content, all you have to do is type in e-ir.info in your web browser. And also go check out E-International Relations on social media, and there you'll be able to engage in dialogue with the team. Also, because this particular piece came from the article that Dr. Harrington has written, there will be a link to that article in the description if you want to read more. At Thinking Global, we are made up of a 
really big team, so I'd like to thank Edward Curry, Tasharika Decker, Nigel Huckle, Abigail Glynn, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, and of course, I could not have done this episode without the great, great Ismail Aden. <laughs> thank you very much, Ismail. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you on this one. Music was by Material Music. So, I've been Kieran O'Meara. I've been Ismail Aden. And we've been Thinking, Thinking Global. Global. So what series of Prism Break did you get to? <laughs>